last year I was I was officiating a basketball game. I was down at Greene County, and there was something about the warm-up shirts of, of the visiting team that just caught my attention. Uh, they had a on the front of their shirt they had a, a picture of a of a ship. And I thought, oh well, that would be normal if their mascot were like the Admirals or something water related. But they were the Wildcats. And I thought, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, Wildcats and boats typically don't go together, but I said, oh, well, it is Kentucky and Kentucky Wildcat fans. Yeah, I, you know, just saying. I'm wearing a Louisville shirt today. I know we've won like three games, so I get it. So I, I shouldn't talk any trash, but, but couldn't resist such a chance. Anyway, so I was kind of wondering what was going on with it. And then I noticed on the back of the shirt, they had, a, had a, just a saying on the shirt. And it said, burn the ships. And I thought, that doesn't make any sense. Like, what is all that about? One of the other referees came over and he asked me, he said, hey, what's going on with their shirts? Do you, do you understand what that means? I said, I have no idea what this is about. So as the teams are going to the locker room, we're following uh, the teams to our locker rooms are close by. And so I grabbed one of the assistant coaches and said, hey, what's, what's the deal with your all shooting shirts? What, what's the burn the ships thing? And so he starts explaining to me the mentality behind it. And then he tells me the story uh, uh, behind it. Now, I didn't know the story, but if you paid attention in history class, which obviously I didn't, um, you might know the story. You might be familiar with the Spanish explorer uh, Hernan Cortes. Now, again, I didn't know the story. I had, clearly didn't pay attention, but, but this is where their, their burn the ships uh, came from, and it was about, hey, we're going all in. We're, this is our year to win the region, to do whatever. We're doing whatever it takes. And so on February the 15th, 1519, Cortes set sail for Mexico. He had 11 ships, 13 horses, and about 600 men. That was all he had. Now, Cortes had been a conqueror of the South American countries, and now he was moving north and he was heading to Mexico. And when Cortes and his crew landed, his crew was tired from previous battles, from previous expeditions, and they weren't really interested in conquering a new land. What they were really interested in was going back home. Now, the approximately 5 million people that they were going to have to fight might have played into that as well. I mean, there were only 600 of them, so they were going to be outnumbered something like 7,540 to 1. And I'm sure that the two previous failed expeditions that they had taken to Mexico already lingered in the background of their minds, and probably Cortez as well. And so with all of that in mind, and seeing the, the, uh, the mentality of his crew, Cortez gave an order. And it was an order that changed his mission into an all-or-nothing proposition. And the order was this. Burn the ships. Burn the ships. And so Cortez's crew stood on the beach and they watched their fleet of ships burn and sink. And in that moment, they had to come to terms with the idea that retreat was no longer an option. That it was all-or-nothing in this moment. And I think there's a lesson for us to be learned in that. Because nine times out of ten, failure is resorting to plan B when plan A gets too risky or, or too costly or too difficult. In fact, I think that's why most people are living their plan B. They didn't burn the ships. Plan A people don't have a plan B. It, it's plan A or bust. They would rather fail and crash and burn going after their plan A than to succeed at something else. Bob Goff said it this way. He said, I used to be afraid of failing at something big. Now I'm more afraid of succeeding at something that doesn't matter. Whatever 
the big, hairy, audacious goals that we might have, when those seem to get too difficult or too risky or too costly, what do we do? We resort to what we know, what we're comfortable with, what we're used to. I think there are moments in our life where we gotta, where we got to get past that and we got to burn the ships. We've we got to go all in and, and burn the ships to our past. And so you, you, how do you do that? Well, you do it by making a defining decision that's going to eliminate the possibility of being able to sell back to your old way of life, to the old world that you just left behind. You've you got to burn the ships of past failures. You've got to burn the ships of past successes. You've got to burn the ships of, of bad habits and, and burn the ships named my old way of life. You, you burn the ships so that there's no option to turn back, so that there's no option to retreat, so that there is no plan B, that it's plan A or bust. You've got to go all in. There's a passage in the Old Testament that gives us a similar type of story about a, about a person who goes all in, who, who eliminates everything that could be his, his fallback plan. It, and it's really, it's a powerful passage of Scripture, I think, but it, it kind of gets glossed over because of the events that happen right before it. It's over in 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you've got a Bible, flip over to 1 Kings 19. And, uh, and, and we're, we'll look at a couple of verses here. But in 1 Kings chapter 18 is the battle of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You might be familiar with this story. If you've been in church very long at all, you remember that story. Where Elijah has this epic battle with the prophets of Baal. And you know they're in the middle of a drought. And, and there's all these prophets of Baal, 750 I think. And... And they're going to make a sacrifice to their God. And they spend all day just cutting themselves and crying out to their God. And nothing happens. And Elijah kind of mocks their God. He says, you know, hey, what's the matter with your God? Is he asleep? You know, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's gone. Maybe he's just in the bathroom and he can't hear you. Maybe, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so after hours and hours and hours, they give up. And then Elijah, again, in the middle of a drought, he goes and finds all the water that he can find. And he dumps it all over his sacrifice. And then he prays and he calls down fire from heaven and God delivers and, and, he, and God burns the offering. And then he, he strikes down all of the prophets of Baal. And Elijah has this epic victory. I mean, it is really the stuff that, that uh, movies are made of. But if you remember, there was a queen who was reigning during that time that was known for her viciousness. And King Ahab, who was probably kind of, I get the impression, kind of a coward of a man, goes back to Queen Jezebel and tells her what had happened. Now, ladies, if you've ever been called a Jezebel, you wonder where we get that term from. This is, this is the person we get that term from. If you've ever been called that, it wasn't a term of endearment, okay? They, they were being, it was a nice way of saying something else. But Jezebel hears what's, what's happened, and now she wants to kill Elijah even more than she already did. And so Elijah goes on the run. And practically, there's probably a pretty good life lesson in this, men, if you have a woman in your life spouse or otherwise that wants to kill you you should probably go on the run just you know there's a whole lot of like how to kill your husbands and get away with it tv shows out there and it bothers me that my wife watches those um, anyway elijah goes on the run and he's having himself sort of this little pity party um he's and and he's hiding out in the mouth in, in this cave and he's having this conversation with god about how much he's done for god and about how faithful he's been to god and how he's remained faithful even when everybody else around him has deserted him. And it's all about just, you know, I'm this and I'm that and everybody else has left me and, and I'm all alone and God, I'm scared and, and I'm going to die because this woman's going to hunt me down and all of this. And he's just having this pity party. And God listens to him. And finally God's heard enough. And he says, Elijah, get up. 
Go out to the mouth of the cave. Go out to the mouth of the cave. And so Elijah goes out there, and when he does, there's a big windstorm that comes through. And, and, and God's not in that windstorm. And he stands there, and he waits, and there's an earthquake that happens, and God's not in the earthquake. But then a small little whisper comes, and in, the pres- and in that moment where that small little whisper is, is the presence of the Lord. And in that moment, the Lord asks Elijah a question. He says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And I think that was God's way of saying nicely, really? Like, all this stuff that I've done for you, all this stuff that you've just done, did you just forget that, like, yesterday you were on top of this mountain with all of these prophets and you called fire down from heaven and I delivered. You defeated all of these prophets of Baal. I, I delivered. What, is, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you so scared? And so Elijah begins to answer his question, God's question, with a kind of a a rehearsed answer. It really all boils down to basically all the stuff that he'd already said. You know, I'm I'm all alone. Nobody else cares. Everybody else has has turned away from you. I'm the only one that's left. You ever felt that way? Like you're the only person that is, is trying to do right in the world. Everybody else is just doing wrong. That's how Elijah felt. And so God lets him rant again. And when he's finished, God says, okay, now you're going to listen to me. Look. You don't get the big picture. You don't see the big picture. You only see what's right in front of you. You see the 3,000-foot view, but I see the 30,000-foot view. And you need to know that, no, you're not alone. In fact, there are, there are thousands of people still in, in, in my land that I have promised you that where you came from that have not bowed down to Baal and are not going to. You're not alone. You need to know this, that, that I have been faithful to you and I've been faithful to them. And, and, and so God says, okay, Elijah, here's, here's the deal. Here's what's going to happen. Because you think you're all alone, because you think that everybody else has deserted you, you're going to go back the way that you came. You go back the way that you came, and when you go, you find these people, these, these people that I'm telling you about. And specifically, you're going to find Elisha. You're going to find Elisha, and he's going to take your place as prophet. And so verse 19 of chapter 19 says this. says, So Elijah went from there, and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Now, in, in our day, in our culture, throwing your cloak, your, your coat around somebody doesn't mean much, does it? But in ancient days, it was a symbol of authority and adoption. It was a very clear message to Elisha and anybody else that might have been around what Elijah was doing. He was saying, hey, you're about to take my place. Hey, God is anointing you to, to be somebody special, and you're going to follow me. You're going to be my apprentice. You're going to be uh, my, my intern, so to speak, and you're going to take my place. God is picking you. And there was no mistaking that message. And so verse 20 continues. It says, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? And so Elisha left him and went back. And here's the moment that I want you to pay attention to. Because here's the moment when Elisha decides to go all in. It says, he, he, Elisha, took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Look, this is, a, this, again, I think this is a powerful moment here, but again, it gets kind of glossed over. Look what Elisha does. He, he's got all of these oxen. He's got 12 pairs. He's got all of this farmland. He's, he's plowing. He's got all of this equipment. And he, he slaughters his oxen. And he burns the equipment. 
That, that was Elisha's way of burning the ships. He couldn't go back to his old way of life because the, the, he destroyed the time machine that would take him back. It, it, was, it was the end of Elisha the farmer, and it was the beginning of Elisha the prophet. Just think about the symbolism of, of what Elisha did. I mean, Elisha literally cooked his old way of life, and then he ate it for dinner. And, and I'm not trying to be gross or disgusting here, but, but after he digested it, he got it out of his system. He eliminated the possibility of going back to farming by eating his oxen and by burning his plowing equipment. Look, it doesn't matter if you're trying to lose weight or you're trying to get into grad school or start a business or get out of debt. Look, the first step is always the longest and the hardest. And, and you can't just take a step forward into the future. You've also got to eliminate the possibility of moving backwards into the past. That's how you go after goals. That's how you break addictions. It's how you reconcile relationships. You, you leave the past in the past by burning the ships. Look, I know too many people, and you probably do as well, that never seem to get any momentum going in their life. They never seem to have any positive momentum going forward in their life. And, and they just seem to keep going back to their past. They keep going back to old habits, back to old relationships, back to what they know. And it's because they didn't burn the ships. They, they keep going back to, to the old and rereading old chapters instead of writing new chapters. Look, if you want to begin a new chapter in your life, you have to end an old chapter first. And the way that you do that is, is with a punctuation mark. You, you can put a period on the page that, and, and turn the page. That gets the job done. But if you want to be more dramatic, you can use an exclamation point. It's more decisive. It's more definitive. And after you put that exclamation point on the page, you turn the page and you begin a new sentence. You start a new chapter. And what's true in grammar is true in life. If you want to break a habit, if you want to stop a conflict, if you want to just leave the past in the past, you need a punctuation mark. And a comma ain't going to get it done. You need an exclamation point in your life. Look, Elisha didn't need to burn the plowing equipment to follow Elijah. But it made a statement. More specifically, it made a statement of faith. There was no turning back for Elisha. If this prophetic apprenticeship didn't work out for Elisha, then there was no plan B. He couldn't just go back to farming. This was Elisha's all-in moment. He wasn't just buying in, he was selling out. And, and that's what really going all-in is all about. It's about being fully present in the here and now. It's, it's not living in the past tense or, or in the future tense. And don't get me wrong, it's not that we don't learn from our past and look forward to the future, but, but you don't live there. Going all-in is, is living as though each day is your first day and the last day of your life. Let, let me ask you. Elisha made a powerful statement of faith in, in that moment, in that burning the equipment and eating the oxen. What's your statement of faith? H have you made a statement of faith? And I'm not talking about like repeating a prayer uh, or anything like that. That's a positive step of faith, don't get me wrong, but it, it doesn't really equate to, to building a bonfire and burning your ox, oxen, does it? A statement of faith must, hence the term, make a statement. It, it's, a, it's a defining decision accompanied by dramatic action that, that symbolizes your absolute commitment to Jesus and His kingdom. And look, please understand this. I don't, like, I'm not suggesting that you go to the closest tattoo parlor and get something tattooed on you. And please don't set it fire to anything that you don't own. But, but what's the thing that you need to do to cut the cord to your past? Because for a lot of us, I think there's always something there that just kind of lingers. And, 
And we just go back to it instead of cutting the cord, instead of burning the ships. Michael and Maria Durso, they are the founders of, of Christ's Tabernacle in Queens, New York. Their, their spiritual journey uh, started with a, a pretty dramatic conversion experience. And in, in their 20s, Michael and Maria, they were about as far from God as you could get. They, they, they openly mocked anything religious. They, they, they didn't believe in God. They, they just lived life on their own terms, with their own set of values, their own set of morals, nothing that had any kind of spiritual resemblance to it all. They, they lived together as boyfriend and girlfriend, sleeping together. They just lived from one drug fix to the next, all of that kind of stuff. And then one day, Maria mysteriously came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I say mysteriously because she wasn't in church. She wasn't in a church. She wasn't reading her Bible or a Bible. She was in a hotel room on vacation with her boyfriend, and they had just been doing drugs. What she didn't know until she returned home, though, was that a group of her friends had become Christians. And at that very moment where she felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they were thousands of miles away praying for her and Michael. When Michael and Maria returned home to New York, they, they, they decided they had to make some changes in their life. And so, so Michael moved out and they stopped sleeping together. They started going to church, and after making the decision to follow Christ, Michael knew that he needed to divorce himself from his past, and so he gathered up all his drug paraphernalia. He got magazines and videos that were remnants of, of his old self, and one by one, he dropped them down the incinerator chute of his, of his New York City apartment building. That's a statement of faith. Please understand this. Please understand what I'm saying, that we are saved by grace through faith, period. Maybe I should say exclamation mark. You are not more saved or, or less saved based on how creative or compelling or courageous your statement of faith is. It, it's all about the cross of Jesus, okay? It's all about that. But a statement of faith makes it personal. It makes it memorable. Remember the tax collector who, who put his faith in Christ? He, he gave half of his possessions to the poor. Now, that isn't what saved him. But that dramatic action was evidence of a defining action, of a defining decision. He also offered to pay back four times to any person that he had cheated. Before he met Jesus, money was his God. So it would make sense that his, his statement of faith would involve finances. Remember the prostitute who anointed, Jesus with the, who anointed Jesus? She opened up her alabaster jar and anointed him with that. That isn't what saved her. But it was a dramatic action that was evidence of a defining decision. She gave her most prized possession to Jesus. Not only was it extremely valuable, it was worth a lot of money, but it was also part of her sex appeal. She was giving up her former life by giving that jar to Jesus. You remember the revival that broke out in Ephesus? The, those who practiced sorcery, uh, they burned their scrolls publicly. The, the cumulative value of those scrolls it was valued somewhere at 50,000 drachma. Now, a drachma was a silver coin worth a day's wage. That's 138 years worth of wages. They could have sold those scrolls and pocketed the money themselves. Instead, they made a $3,739,972 statement of faith. One of our fundamental spiritual problems is that we want God to do something new while, while we keep doing the same old thing. We want God to change our circumstances without us having to change at all. Somebody said that's the definition of insanity, right? But if we're asking God for, for new wine, then we're going to need new wineskins. You're going to have to do something different. Most of us get stuck spiritually because we keep doing the same thing while expecting different results. 
And spiritual routines, don't get me wrong, they're a crucial part of our spiritual growth. But when the routine becomes routine, you got to change it up. Where, where you are where, where you are now may not get you to where God wants to take you to next. What, what that, that thing that worked for you in the past, it may not work for you in the future. In, in Amos 5, we, uh, there's, a, there's a verse in there. In verse 5, we, this is what the prophet says. He says, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. Seek the Lord and live. And that's interesting to me because all three of those places, Bethel, Gilgal, and, and Beersheba, they are all important places in the, in the history of the Israelites. Bethel was the place where Jacob had this life-changing dream where, where he built an altar and he made a vow. Gilgal is the place where the Israelites camped after God miraculously parted the Jordan River and they stepped foot in the, into the Promised Land for the first time. It took one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years for Israel to get the Egypt out of them. Gilgal marks the spot where God rolled away their consequences. Beersheba is the place where Abraham made a treaty with Abimelech and, and called on the Lord, and so his son Isaac dug a well and, and made a vow there, built an altar there. All three of these places are, hold special spiritual significance. They were sacred landmarks of Israel's past. So why would God tell them not to seek him in those places? Well, the answer is simple, I think. Because you won't find God in the past. God's name is not I was. His name is I am. He is an ever-present help. And when we cling too tightly to what God did last, we often miss out on what God wants to do next. God, God is at work right here, right now. He's always doing something new. So go ahead if you want and build your altars to, to, to mark holy moments in the past. If you want to do that, go for it. But the purpose of those altars is to remind us of God's faithfulness in the past so that we have the faith to believe in His faithfulness in the present and the future. Look, I think at some point in every person's life, we, we start living out of our imagination, we stop living out of our imagination, and we start living out of memory. And if I'm really honest, I think that's the day that we probably start dying and stop living. To, to be fully alive is to be fully present. It mandates that we leave the past in the past. And I think that's the impetus behind Paul's encouragement in Philippians 3. He says, forgetting what is behind, forgetting that, and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I, I love that little phrase there, press on. It, it reminds me of basketball games. Um, when, when I'm refereeing, I, I, when I'm officiating, I typically like more up-tempo games, games that we're going to run up and down the floor a little bit. Unless I've had like four of them in a row, then I'm ready for like, hey, we're going to walk the ball up the floor and everybody's just going to stand around. I'm, I'm good for those every now and then. But most of the time, I, I want games where we, we run up and down the floor, where, where there's some tempo to it, where, where teams are pressing the pace. But, but typically, teams play one or two types of defenses. There's the, the most common defense that we see is just half-court defense, usually a zone defense. And like I said, I don't mind those games if I've had a bunch of the other kind of games in a week. But, but typically those, those kind of games, those teams, they sit back and they just they let the game come to them. It, it's a defensive-minded way of playing the game. It's more protect-the-lead style, more playing to, to lose or playing not to lose instead of playing to win. In, in football, it, it's called prevent defense. You, that's, that's their form of it. But there's an offensive form of defense, too. 
the, the full court press. You, you force the issue. You don't let the game come to, to you. You take it to them. And I just wonder if the church, if we're content playing prevent defense while God is calling for us to have a full court press. I think all too often we're content to just sat, sit back in and let everything come to us. But God has never called us to be those kind of people. In fact, I think that's the point of Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, when she says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing. Not sitting back and waiting for it, forcefully advancing, and forceful men have, have laid hold of it. And it's not just that way in the church, it's in all areas of our life. I mean, are you playing offense in your marriage, or are you playing prevent defense that just kind of leaves romance on the side? Are you parenting reactively or proactively? Are, are you working for a paycheck, or are you stewarding God's given gifts to, by pursuing a God-ordained dream? Are, are you trying to break even spiritually by just avoiding sin? Or are you going for broke, invading the darkness with the light and the love of Jesus? Look, we, we don't know what the future is going to be like, but the only way to predict the future is to create it. You don't let it happen. You don't just sit back and, and wait for it to happen. You, you get in there and you make it happen. And how do you do that? Well, you stop regretting the past and you learn from it. You let go of the guilt that may haunt you by, by your past and you lean into God's grace. You quit beating yourself up and let the Holy Spirit heal your heart. Look, I don't know what everybody's past in this room looks like, but I can tell you this, you can't divorce yourself from it. It's your past. You're married to it forever. But God is able to reconcile it and to reconcile your past by redeeming your past. God is in the recycling business. He makes recycled goods out of wasted lives. And the spiritual tipping point, I think, is when the pain of staying the same becomes, the, becomes greater than the pain of change. Sadly, too many of us get comfortable with comfort. We follow Christ to the point of inconvenience, but not really any further than that. Maybe we need someone to, to walk into our lives and throw their cloak around, around our shoulders and, and wake us up to a new reality, a new possibility. Someone to boldly confront plan B and call us back to plan A. Look, you've heard me say it before, but it's worth saying again. The church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. All right, The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. We, we need to understand that. And the sooner we understand that and begin to live like that and understand the truth that, that only, the only way the kingdom of God is going to grow, the only way more people are going to come into fellowship with Christ is through us, through the church, then the quicker we can get to work, the quicker we can stop living in plan B and get to plan A, back to plan A. I believe that God is calling us to be all in on his plan A, to be his plan A, to burn the ship so that retreat is not an option. And look, I get it. It's difficult to, to imagine burning the ships when you don't see any other way to cross the Jordan River. But I think this is true, that if we have the courage to burn the ships, then we'll come to the understanding that we didn't need them to get, to get where God wants to take us anyway. That God will provide everything that we need to get us to where we need to go and God himself will get all the glory so let's burn the ships and let's go all in on God's plan a to lead people to love and follow Jesus because I'm telling you if the church doesn't do it nobody else will we are plan a and there is no plan b live your plan a without a plan b be all in for the kingdom of God Let's lead people to love and follow Jesus. Let me pray for us.